Walker. It was delicious, <laughs> if I'm being honest. It's from a Tex-Mex mix. So nice. What's what is Tex-Mex? Yeah. Oh, we just went live. Well, yeah. Let me go ahead and lower the volume. How's it going, everybody? Eerie buddy. Hey, just spotlighted on me for right now. Yeah, we're doing speaker mode. So. Okay, there we go. Yeah. How's everybody doing? We're on a couple minutes early, which we've done. I think this is three weeks in a row now, right? Four a lot of people. Were, a lot of people yes. were on early this morning. That's because they they don't want to miss any of the Italy. You know what they say: punctuality is next to godliness. This is true. Isn't that, the, isn't that the way the saying goes? It is. Now, you guys want to um, hear a story? Absolutely. Um, talking to my um, early is good, so I'm not late, Anders. Um, you know what I really don't like? Hey, Zach, is when Vaughn doesn't share his camera. When he talks, it just shows his name. doesn't show his picture. Do we know why it does that? Oh, it's because we're not using uh, stream, stream, StreamYard. Oh, which we'll do next week. Yeah, we're gonna do right. that next week. <laughs> hey, we're just uh, we're just on early just to like say hi to everybody who's already in the chat before we get started. Yeah, we'll say it's pretty impressive that we've grown the weekly live Q and A to an audience of around 500 weekly views and around 100 to 200 come through the stream live, which is about 50 average viewers on on just Zoom, like on just low quality like nothing fancy no no flash over graphics just talking about industry 4.0 providing value and you know every week you guys show up and we're thankful for that so we're going to keep showing up for you guys so how's it going gopal good to see you man liam zach wooten anders dr Riken. um quick story i'm gonna tell you if nobody has has any questions for firsthand let me tell you a quick story so um i i turned 47 yesterday yesterday was my birthday and um i got all sorts of messages you know from like partners and my brothers and sisters and you know my birthday is not a big deal to me <laughs> like at all i could care um yeah, growing up my dad used to always say you know your birthday is just another day it's like you know um at the end of the day, I just never really cared a whole lot um, about my birthday. But I care a lot about my wife's birthday because it matters to her, right? So I was having this conversation. I have, um, so those guys don't know, I have, um, I have three sons and I have an adopted daughter. And, um, and so I do lots of pass on life lessons to my kids and stuff. So I've got one son who's 17 years old. I have another son who is 22 and, um, you know, he has a girlfriend, a ser serious relationship. Right. And, uh, we were talking about her birthday was just recent. We just had yesterday, we had a, a birthday party that was basically for me, one of my youngest, my 13 year old sons or 14 year old sons, friends. And then for my oldest son's girlfriend, we just kind of share the thing. And I was in my, my oldest son's like me. He doesn't really care about birthdays, right? I mean, it's just not important to him. But we had this long conversation. I said to him, you know, but as you, you know, if you're going to enter into a relationship and get a partner, 
you don't need to, you know you have to if birthdays are important to your part important to your partner you have to celebrate them you know what i mean for them right but they don't have to celebrate them for you my wife obviously cares a lot about birthdays <laughs> a whole lot my wife is known as like the party planner and all that kind of stuff so she goes way out of her way to make people feel special on their birthday like just way over the top my idea of a perfect birthday is basically just kind of sitting around doing nothing watching tv hanging out with my kids like that's my idea of a fun birthday um excuse me and uh so anyway i was talking to my kids yesterday about they were like hey happy birthday dad or you know and my 17 year old son and i were talking about the birthday and he said you know why does mom you know because my wife did a lot of stuff for my birthday she said why does she do that stuff and i said because birthdays matter to her like they just don't matter to me at all but they matter to her it's important so she does for me what she wants me to do for her and each year my birthday comes before hers but I always feel like, you know, she always sets the bar really high. And so my birthday is a bittersweet moment because I, it's sweet because it's my birthday. I get to hang out with my kids and kind of do whatever I want to do. We get to watch whatever I want to watch, that kind of stuff. But it's also disappointing. It's bitter because every year my wife does something awesome for my birthday. And then I know I only, I have like five months before I'm going to screw up hers. Right. And every year on her birthday for like the last six years, I've been at ICC. So her birthday happens to fall the same week as ICC, which is the Ignition Community Conference. And every year I let her down. But because she did such an awesome job on my birthday this year, I came out of my birthday yesterday thinking, I'm, I'm going to be in the doghouse in September. I'm <laughs> just like, it's all I keep thinking, you know? So anyway, that's my story. Uh, actually, one um, other quick story. Um, my 17-year-old my son... Um, he's a big, big fan of um, Matt Walsh from Daily Wire. You know Matt Walsh from Daily Wire. Yes, you guys yes. know the Daily Wire, right? Ben Shapiro and stuff. But he's a big fan of Matt Walsh. And uh, and each morning he gets up early, like me. He's he's one of the kids who gets up early. So he's taking a, he every morning when he takes a shower, he's listening to Matt Walsh's podcast from the previous day. My seventeen-year-old kid thinking. I started thinking, I'm like, you know, you need, really need to, you know, I, I, you know, I like what Matt Walsh has to say, but I was telling, I was telling him this morning, very important that you hear that you also investigate other sides of the story, right? So not just what Matt Walsh's opinion is on, you know, popular culture, current events, but, you know, in our country, politically, we should all hear many points of view, as many as we possibly can, right? So if you're on the right, you should you know, make sure you read stuff that's from the left. And if you're on the left, you should make sure you read stuff that's from the right, you know, so that you hear all points of view. The same thing in industry, like you, you in, you know, we, we, I was thinking about this driving into the office this morning that a lot of people, a lot of end users, a lot of consumers in industry get their information from one place, like one vendor. It's, you know, one um, integrator, one OEM, right? They don't, there's no cultural diffusion, right? There's a single point of failure, a single, a single path of information being shared to you. And that's a problem, right? It's a, it's a problem. You want to cover all 
cover all bases. Part of the reason we shoot this Q and a every week, we, and by the way, we put a lot of time into shooting this. You know, I've, I've been working on it for the last couple of hours. Zach spends a ton of time and we, we, we put a lot of effort into doing this live stream each week. Um, part of the reason we do this and part of the reason we answer questions that come directly from the community is so we can give a broad perspective on many, many different topics, right? Like I, we don't just answer the question from our perspective when a question, when we're answering a question, oftentimes we're answering the question, we're researching the answer from the vendor themselves or whatever. And then we're answering that question from someone else's perspective. It just happens to be my voice blabbing, right? So, all right, with that, um, story's over. W welcome everyone, but make sure we grab those questions that are in there. And Zach, why don't you kick us off? Yeah. Welcome everybody. Thank you for joining the weekly industry 4.0 live Q and a, uh, we're live every week on Tuesday at noon central standard time. So make sure to subscribe and ring the bell, uh, and join us live every week and join the industry 4.0 community discord server. We reached 1,500 members, which is absolutely insane. Uh, so there'll be a link down in the description box below to join the Discord server. Um, and with that said, let's jump into the weekly live Q&A. Awesome. Before I share my screen, real quick, Zach Wooten said in the chat, I invited some In4EAM guys into the Discord. I warned them about selling. <laughs> I asked them to provide valuable content like Brown AWS. So two things. Number one, I'm a big fan of In4EAM. Uh, that doesn't mean that I think it's perfect, but uh, of most of the um, EAM solutions that we work with, Infor is the one we work with the most. So, um, and the and they they're very attentive and responsive to development of the API. So, modifying the API so it can be seamlessly integrated into a, your infrastructure, right? So, and we generally do that in, that integration through a, the REST. We use web dev module and ignition, or we use the uh, web services um, connector in Factory Studio to plug into Infor and pull it in. But it's good to see that the Infor gang is joining. I've gotten tons and tons of messages um, from presidents of vendors and that kind of stuff. You know, very impressed with the community, very happy, you know, with all the people that we've got. Um, you know, the, oh, that the, brings the, up. Uh... The cross oh, on the, the 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 broad spectrum of people we've got in the community. I'm, I I spent a ton of time this weekend going over previous messages that I hadn't. I've been I was been very busy the last two or three weeks, so I couldn't get into Discord. I really couldn't dedicate the time to it. I spent a lot of time over the weekend getting caught up. Very impressed with a lot of the conversations going on there. So um, we we have an amazing community. Very very proud of of um, two things. Number one. The conversations that are going on, the ideas, the free exchange ideas, I, I, I just, you know, it's, it, it, we couldn't even, have, that was our vision, but we, it, it's, if it's far ex exceeded what we hoped that it would be. And then number two, the fact that all the salespeople that are in there can actually, you know, follow the rules and not actively sell all the time. Although we do see, you know, okay, we're, we don't have to moderate a lot. We're moderating occasionally. We don't really, we don't spend a lot of time having to correct, Hey, don't post that kind of stuff. That's, you know, outside of the rules or whatever, but I'm proud of the fact that the salespeople have able, been able to maintain their discipline and not, you know, throw a bunch of shit against the wall and see what sticks. So go ahead. Or Zach. Yeah. So no, you brought up a good point. Um, 
this is something that just came up recently. Someone of the community has asked, have asked, and I've talked with some of our partners. Uh, we've got a lot of people like, you know, Jeff, uh, Jeff with Canary and, uh, you know, we've got the guys from Hive MQ and Highbyte and, you know, even, um, Graham from flow software just joined the discord this week. So we were thinking, just sent me a message last weekend. Yeah. What if, and maybe, maybe the community, I want your guys's input. What if we had a category that was like platforms and then we had a channel like for each platform for the community to ask questions specific to like that platform or discussions about hive MQ, like, let's say, for example, um, it'd be a, just a way for us to organize it, not a place to like sell or anything like that. And not a place for like official, like support or anything like that. In fact, we would encourage, you know, maybe like the first link in that, the first comment in that thread would be like the link to their official support. But if you wanted to just ask questions about high or how does it work? It'd be another way for us to organize the discord. So yeah, we're, we're working on that. So excellent. Hey, make sure we, you, you save, I think it's Nabin or Naban's question, Naban Fazal's question. Oh, I thought please, I had pinned it. Yeah, I thought I had pinned yeah, it. Yeah, please advise the gateway, the best gateway to extract the data from BACnet network to AWS. I'm not going to give the best answer. I, I won't, I, I don't want to answer it in terms of what's the best gateway. There's a bunch of different options. I'd rather answer it like broad, broad spectrum. So um, Cheryl McCrary uh, said, hey, we salespeople can be trained. All right, Cheryl, we, we talked about this after the, after the session, I mean, here's another quick story. So after the session, you know, so Cheryl McCrary was on the community spotlight last week, and we always do a post mortem after the after the spotlight. And I I was talking to Vaughn and Zach, and I said, you know, so interesting thing on Industry 4.0. We talk about this all the time. I think it's in any tech related job. The more fluent you are in technology, the much faster you can spot bullshit, right? You have a really good bullshit meter. So the more fluent you are, the more you can tell that someone is, you know, they may not, they, that, that someone is not fluent. Also, you can tell if someone is very fluent in technology. Cheryl likes to say that she's just the salesperson and, um, Hey, Jeff Rankinen and his classes is, is watching again today. Cheryl McCurry likes to say that uh, actually there's some great topics today, Jeff, that I think they'll appreciate. Um, Cheryl McCurry likes to call herself just a salesperson. The problem is, is that you are, Cheryl, you're far too fluent in the available technology and the hurdles that organizations have to jump in order to successfully transform to be just a salesperson. I mean, it just jumps, you know, as much as you maybe you're trying to like hide it and, you know, or, you know, downplay your skill set, you're not fooling anybody on our team. So <laughs> you're not just a salesperson, Cheryl. At a minimum, you're a technical consultant who supports sales and probably something much closer between that and architect. Um, all right. So with that, let me share my screen. Oh, me, uh. So Jeff Rankin's group from 10 Penn Texan. So let's get to the questions. Um, all right. Live Q&A this week. Uh, no community spotlight. We're trying to get um, Luke. Um, you guys may have seen the exchange that Luke and I had um, and um, uh, earlier this week. We're trying to get Luke on so we can kind of talk about um, architecture and such. Um, I didn't say that. 
Uh, right. You didn't say that. You didn't say that you're just a salesperson, but you did say you do say things that would lead a not a non-sophisticated person to think that you're just a salesperson. We, we, we sales sort of people. steer them in that direction. We salespeople, right? Um, all right. So quick updates. Um, so we're doing a webinar Friday, June 11th, which is part of the mentorship program, but it's going to be, it's a launch webinar. So we're doing the summer launch event for mentorship. Member mentorship will reopen up for additional signees in, in June. We're doing a free webinar. Um, so you don't have to be a member of mentorship to participate in this event. And it's, it'll be the first session of architecting your industry 4.0 career. So part of what we're doing with, um, with mentorship is we will be, um, we're going to add into the curriculum, um, talking about how to architect your career, how to, how to select your values and your mission, and then drive your career based on those values and mission. Um, your, your technical development, your professional development, that's going to be yeah. part. We're adding that into mentorship. There will be a launch event called architecting your industry 4.0 career on June 11th, Friday, June 11th. Zach will have a, an announcement that has all the signups and all that jazz for you guys. Uh, number two mastermind session for April is April 30th. It's, fr uh, it's Friday, April 30th, eight in the morning. Um, so that's for all the members of mastermind. We are still working on, we're still shooting module two for frameworks. We should be ready to release. I'm not going to commit to a date, but um, we probably have another 12 hours of work to do. So if we can get that 12 hours of work done, then we can get it launched out. Uh, number four, um, I'm going to be doing a presentation um, for the Tech Data Manufacturing University. Uh, so I'll be doing a presentation called What is Digital Transformation? In, in that, uh, it's sort of the keynote, it's kicking off this, this event where tech data is basically training, um, in, well, it's really training everybody, but it's focused towards um, industry 4.0 professionals who are involved in technical sales. So, you know, if I'm selling I, IT infrastructure, I'm selling routers and I'm selling switches and that kind of stuff, this, the, the presentation is what is digital transformation? How can you help? The, the part of that presentation that's going to be unique is I'll be doing what is manufacturing and what's the history of manufacturing. So industry 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. Okay. And that is um, May 20th. It's sponsored by Intel and uh, it'll be presented at 1115 Eastern. There'll be more information released for you guys. For those of you that don't notice, uh, may have noticed, uh, we did finally get the domain completely switched over to iiot.university. So if you want to access um, the uh, if you want to access the industry 4.0 university, you can do it exclusively now through the IIoT.university domain. All right, questions. Any questions with that? Not sure if you covered this on another video, but what's the difference between intelligent manufacturing, digital manufacturing, and smart manufacturing? Um, they are different. They are, um, so this is a good question, Vadim. Uh, it's uh, Vadim Haller. Uh, so what is the difference between intelligent manufacturing, digital manufacturing, and smart manufacturing? From a 10,000 foot view, there's no difference. They're, those are synonyms for the same thing. So at a 10,000 foot view, if you're talking very high level, you could use those three terms interchangeably. At the thousand foot view, so down on the plant floor, what is intelligent manufacturing, digital manufacturing, and smart manufacturing? How do they differ? 
Smart manufacturing connotes that you are using smart devices. That is, all of the device, all of the devices in your ecosystem are um, they they are self aware. They understand their own context, and they can report on their own context. You know the health of me as a device, in addition to the functional data that it can publish. That's what smart manufacturing connotes. Digital manufacturing means no paper. So at the thousand foot level, everything is digitized and, um, and there's no manual transactions, no, no manual paper transactions in your stack. And intelligent manufacturing is the least digital of all three. You can be doing intelligent manufacturing. Um, you can be collecting data to derive decision-making using intelligent manufacturing, but not everything be digital and, and you don't, and you don't have smart devices. Um, you know, smart devices aren't ubiquitous across the infrastructure. That's, that's the difference between the three. Okay. Um, all right, let me go to my questions here. All right. Uh, let me drop this. All right. So just a quick reminder again, I already mentioned it, but architecting your industry 4.0 career, that'll be June 11th. It'll be a free webinar. Um, you There's know, going to be a ton of value. Yeah. And it's, and it's part of mentorship. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of an extension. Um, it's an extension of uh, the video we published a couple of weeks ago. We got a lot of feedback from that. And that's the reason we decided to steer it in that direction. Um, new domain, IoT.university. And let's start with number qu question number one. So um, Henning, who's our, our German friend um, who works for a manufacturer in Germany, um, he said, hey, at the company where I work, there's some discussion about the scope of Industry 4.0. Actually, um, for example, our cobots, VR, AR, Industry 4.0 topics that belong in the Industry 4.0 strategy? The answer is yes. I was planning to write an internal paper that should help us define Industry 4.0 and focus on the aspect of generating insights and improving the business by turning data into information in order to make better decisions. Um, I want to clarify that uh, real quick. Um, Henning, you're not just turning data into information, but you are unifying data and information into a single source of truth. That's what I would add to the end of that sentence. I wanted to use some examples of companies that started their business as an industry 4.0 company from the beginning. Walker likes to mention Tesla being able to tell how much each individual car costs when it rolls off the line. Uh, we'd be happy to have similar success stories that I could back up. So, um, with articles or official statements, if someone asked me for my sources, so I did. I did mention this last week that the challenge here is that industry 4.0 companies don't want to broadcast that they are because that's their competitive advantage. But I did get permission to share some other companies, so uh, that's what I'm gonna do now. I um, think that they should broadcast that they are industry 4.0. I think until until their competitors start to start to migrate, you know, start to transform. I think they're going to, they'll keep a lot of this information in their, in their pocket. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Um, I, so I got five examples that I can share with you. So uh, a really good, um, uh, uh, all five of these are industry 4.0 companies that started after the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, three of these started, or four of these started um, after 2010. Okay. Um, so Seagrid, they're a manufacturer of AMRs. Um, automated um, robots, um, AGVs and BGVs. Um, not only do they provide smart 
robotics for other manufacturers, but the way that they manufacture their robots is leveraging a, a full industry 4.0 um, stack. So they are a technology. When we talk about an industry 4.0 company, and we're talking about one that's very mature. So if we're talking about like a Tesla or we're talking about an Amazon, what we're saying is, is those are, they are tech companies who make products that generally get better after the consumer buys them, right? And they are data-driven. They collect basically every data point and they use artificial intelligence and machine learning to identify relationships between data points that human beings can't see with the naked eye, naked eye and they work towards of uh, a complete loop, uh, a, uh, a closed loop um, stack. Okay. So Seagrid is a very good example. Um, you can go to their website and take a look at them. Not only do they provide smart devices, smart AGVs or VGVs or AMRs for other manufacturers, but the way that they manufacture is upon a fully industry 4.0 stack. Okay. Contact.io, yeah, again, another company that provides. Um, things for the industrial internet of things, but the way that they manufacture those things is on top of a full industry 4.0 stack. So what they do is they make smart badges and they make this device called the portal beam that allows you to, uh, you know, you can do contact tracing for your employees. You can do geofencing, that kind of stuff. And so contact IO, I think they started like in 13 or 14 or something. Um, um, the, Great example. Applied materials, they're in both the solar and semiconductor um, industries. Um, all of their manufacturing is on top of a full industry 4.0 stack. Uh, Terabee is a sensor manufacturer. So not only does Terabee make smart devices for other manufacturers or for integrators or for OEMs, but the mechanism in which they manufacture and track those devices is on a full industry 4.0 stack. And then Bosch, I use Bosch as a legacy company. They were originally an industry 3.0 company who created, they, uh, in their automotive diesel systems, they, they built a facility in China um, that was a, uh, built on a full industry 4.0 stack, a brand new initiative. So uh, a, a, sub, um, a sub entity of the parent Bosch company, they're a separate business unit, and they built this uh, D. Uh, diesel manufacturing. I think uh, this was the injectors, the diesel injectors in China that's built on a full a full industry 4.0 stack. So those are five additional examples, um, um, Henning, that should help you. If, you. if you do a little bit of research, that, that should help you. I, I had about 50 examples, and um, th these are the only five that I, by the time we, we went live, that I was going to be able to share. Um. Uh, Luis Guzman, thanks to Walker Reynolds for that mini course that helped me a lot. I'm now working for a company that is related to 4.0 and many other things. Luis, that's awesome to hear. I, I actually want to take uh, this opportunity to uh, let's, let's do Eamon's announcement. So, um, Zach, hey, stop, stop sharing, stop sharing real quick. So yeah. Go full screen. Yeah. So, um, so part of the reason that we do this, you know, we, we've said this all the time that we're trying to, you know, we start doing content, what we were trying to do was help um, basically teach integrators, teach OEMs, and teach end users to stop making the same mistakes we're seeing everyone make in digital transformation, right? And as a function of that, we discovered, okay, if, if what we really want to do is help save and create middle-class jobs, 
And we want to do that by helping companies leverage technology to digitally transform, right? That is to keep employing people. Okay. Then we have to create an army of people. I mean, we got to find an army of like-minded thinkers. And so part of the advantage of the approach that we took was it was sort of like a moth to a flame. I've used this before that if, if we produce the content, we do it authentically, we live up to our values, we're transparent, we're authentic. Um, we are, uh, you know, humble, we're experts, you know, and we're servant leaders, we will attract people who share those same values. And if we have those same values, if we have those same values, that we, we find people who share our values, then we can help develop them so that they can be a member of this industry 4.0 company. And this, this week, um, this happens all the time, but this week, we one of the members of the community reached out to us to let us know that they were taking the leap, they were going to they were starting their industry 4.0 company um, integrator and 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 they're doing it full time. And so I'm gonna let Zach go ahead and announce yeah, so, who it is. And yeah, I I'm actually really you know I I did a post on LinkedIn earlier this week. Some of you guys who are connected with me on LinkedIn might have seen it. It got a lot of engagement. It was basically saying, hey, you know, we we welcomed a new member of Mastermind this week. Uh, a few actually, and so, but I was actually thinking of this one particular event where you know, hey people are coming to us for their training. And I take that seriously. I take the success of the group seriously. And I don't know if Eamon had saw that, seen that post or not, but later, uh, later that week, or actually yesterday, he reached out to me and said, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's not dipping his toes in the water anymore. He's taking his company full time. So Eamon, a uh, member of the mastermind in our, in our discord, if you guys are looking for a system integrator, he is a 4.0 system integrator. He's out of the Saudi Arabia area and his niche is food and beverage. So if you are a 4.0, you know, manufacturer in that area, if you're in our discord, if you're not, you know, join the discord using the link in the below. But if you are reach out to Eamon and uh, thank you, Eamon. Congratulations, Eamon. And if there's anything that we can do as a community to support your new venture, please let us know what it is. I would just like to ask the community to make sure that if you get a chance to reach out to Eamon, it's A-E-M-O-N, right, Zach? Is that how it's spelled? It is uh, A-Y-M-A-N. A-Y-M-A-N. Um, re- reach out to Eamon and you know, just give him a big congratulations and a pat on the back and some words of encouragement. Because when you first make that, that take that step, that's a huge step. You know what I mean? That means that you're essentially committing to no vacations for the next 18 months and you're going to work six or seven days a week until you get your company off the ground and you build your team. So if you need any help, Eamon, please reach out to the community and let us know. Um, all right. Awesome. Thank you, Zach, for that. All right. Question number two. Uh, all right. So I haven't used Sparkplug B much in the past with higher level software like Ignition. I have used it with my own custom software and scripts which utilize off-the-shelf MQTT client libraries, Eclipse Paho. Um, so I grabbed this screenshot from a random Ignition Sparkplug B YouTube video. One thing I noticed is that there's no D-data topic or folder in the Ignition hierarchy. Is Ignition denormalizing the Sparkplug B payloads into its own UNS hierarchy? So that's an outstanding question. So I'm going to go ahead and just show you what it looks like, actually. All right. So th- this right here is what Ignition... Um, this is the ignition, um, this is the ignition module stack. Okay. For a a general IIoT implementation. So I'm going to kind of explain what you got here. So the, the big bar here, we'll, we'll 
put this in red so that you know everything inside the red thing is inside the ignition platform, right? So Cirrus Link makes modules for ignition for, and those, those modules are called the MQTT distributor, the MQTT engine, and MQTT transmission, okay? And then they make some other ones. And the other two that I've got installed here on this gateway is uh, the AWS injector and the Azure injector, okay? So when, uh, so I've got ignition here. What I've got is the MQTT distributor running, which is the raw broker, okay? So if I have a spark plug B payload that I transmit into the distributor, the MQTT broker, which by the way, I'm not sure why CirrusLink did this. I do not understand why CirrusLink calls this distributor. I have no idea. I don't understand why they don't just call it the CirrusLink broker. I think it probably has to do with the fact that they have their own, they have their own, um, yes, that, that's a good point, Matthew. I, I'll, I'll point that out here in a second. Um, the, uh, that uh, MQTT engine can, ex can um, connect to external brokers as well. So you've got the, the ignition distributor, which is the, which is the MQTT broker. That's your, that's, that would be, it acts exactly the same as if you're using EMQ, HiveMQ, Mosquito, doesn't matter what it is. The distributor module is the raw broker. You could have a broker running in ignition that ignition doesn't interact with in any way, shape or form. Okay. So Chariot Skata, that's right. Uh, Jeffrey Schrader. Thank you. Um, so SiriusLink sells their own broker, you know, both as a software service and, as a server, you can actually buy a physical server. It's got their broker running on it called Chariot. Um, I'm not sure why they don't call this CirrusLink broker because I think the distributor confuses people when they call the module distributor. So distributor equals MQTT broker. It is a raw, pure uh, MQTT broker, and it is and it's written on using um, Eclipse Paho for Java. Okay. Um, you got two other modules. You have the ignition engine, and what engine does is it converts a broker namespace into ignition tags. Okay, so the broker, the engine module, can consume either from the native, the the internal MQTT broker inside of ignition, or an external one, which I didn't put here, but I could have an external broker out here that engine consumes from. Okay. I put another broker out here that engine consumes from. Um, and what it does is it will convert the MQTT broker namespace into ignition tags. So when you are looking at that screenshot, what you are viewing is the ignition tag namespace, which has taken the D data topic namespace in, an, in a Sparkplug B payload and converted that into ignition tags, parsed it into ignition tags. Engine, MQTT engine supports like um, like six or seven different um, MQTT standards. A um, couple of the Google standards, I can't remember all of them. Um, Sparkplug B, Sparkplug A, et cetera, et cetera. So it basically can parse many different types of standardized payloads. But also it allows you to create like a custom parser where you can say, you can basically say that the payload is vanilla and I want you to parse it like this, either publish it as a JSON or, or one payload with a JSON or one topic with a J JSON payload, or I want you to take that JSON and parse it. You can do that as well with Engine. 
So what Engine does is Engine converts an MQTT topic namespace into ignition tags. Transmitter takes the ignition tags and converts them into um, an MQTT broker namespace in a nutshell. So the transmitter module allows you to say, take stuff from this ignition tag namespace, and I want you to transmit it to a broker, either to the internal ignition broker or to an external broker. Okay. In addition to that, you have the ignition OPC UA server, which is part of the ignition platform. And it, it, and it, it, it can um, both share serve out the ignition tag namespace as an OPC UA namespace. And it can consume through native drivers or OPC clients um, data from external sources and map them into the ignition tag namespace, right? Um, and then the ignition platform does things like, you know, visuals, allows you to script, do process control, do data transformation, data analysis, database CRUD, um, API, web services, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, was that a clear uh, explanation? Why is it you don't see D data in the ignition tag namespace? It is because MQTT engine inside of ignition takes the raw MQTT broker namespace and converts it into ignition tags. So there is no tag called D data in ignition. D data is a, um, uh, do, uh, set, drop the link for discord in the um, chat, Zach, please. Hopefully that I, I cleared that, uh, answer that question clearly. Um, What's up, Omar? Ahmed, welcome. JS, Matthew Paris, David Schultz. Why will this not open? Dave, open. Dave Schultz said, congrats for making the leap, Eamon. Um, all right, real quick. Oh, I got to find, I don't know why this isn't opening. Yeah, we were talking with Eamon and uh, every, every Friday that we're not doing one of the mastermind training sessions we're, we're doing like this kind of casual mastermind call in the discord server it's really cool discord you can actually do video calls and voice calls um and so in at the top of the discord under the channels area there's like a video and audio under there there's like a public one there's one for our mentorship program which we're calling the war room and then below that there's like mastermind so we've been kind of you know masterminding with the group and just you know oh there we go all right, Alan Del Val. Sorry, for whatever reason, I couldn't unminimize Firefox while I was sharing my screen. That was weird. Um, all right, so hello, community. Good morning. I have an NX102 Amon controller with flat MQTT publish and subscribe functions. Question Can I convert this flat MQTT into Spark Plug B using Cirrus Link's MQTT engine module? The answer is yes, but I have a, a much broader uh, response to this. So we've been working with Amron over the last. Uh, couple months and we've met with the Amron engineer several times. And right now they are working on a beta for Sparkplug, native Sparkplug B out of the NX102 PLC. Right now they use a, they have an MQTT function block that's inside the PLC that just publishes uh, vanilla MQTT over 3.1.1. We're, we're actually specifically been talking with them about the NX102. So um, 
they are working, uh, they are testing Spark native Sparkplug B support. So we may see sometime this year um, that, uh, that we may see sometime this year that um, uh, the NX102 supports uh, Sparkplug B natively. That being said, let's say I want to take the topic namespace um, from an NX102 PLC and I want to publish that into a broker and then I want to convert it to Sparkplug B. If you get if you get the 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 flat topic namespace from the NX102 into ignition tags, and then you use Cirrus transmitter to take the ignition tags and publish them into a broker, they that will be over that will be Sparkplug B if you so choose. So yes, you can use transmitter. It's not engine engine natively. When it when it when engine consumes the tag namespace from ignition, it consumes it. It constructs it as Sparkplug B. So um, when but it's really transmitter that's that would that you would use to get the ignition tag namespace back into a broker as a Sparkplug B payload. Uh, Matthew Paris at Jeffrey Schrader. Engine equals MQTT gateway. Distributor equals broker. Transmitter equals client uh matthew the answer is sort of um transmitter is an mqtt client but so is engine um the difference is is that engine is a consumption well it it it's engine is designed to consume the structure of the namespace from a broker and transmitter is designed to send a structure to a broker, but they're both clients, Matthew. Yes, there you go. Transmitter equals an MQTT publisher. Exactly. There you go. So um, they've separated. They've separated the publish and the subscribe functionality. The reason from... why, and the reason, the, the reason they did that was so they could create an abstraction layer, so that you could manipulate the namespaces if you wanted to. So if if they if they put that functionality in one module, both subscribe and publish, um, you would be stuck with whatever structure you subscribe to, mm. right? You would be struck. So what they did was they split them out so that you could parse an existing structure any way you want to, and then you could transmit either an existing structure or a new one. That's a good description right there, Matthew Paris. It's not all inclusive, but it's definitely much more. So transmitter equals MQTT publisher, engine equals MQTT subscriber. JS asked, could you make so you couldn't mix vanilla and Sparkplug B? You can. You can mix vanilla and Sparkplug B. You just can't mix them in the same namespace. So th that what that means is they can vanilla and Sparkplug can be uh, siblings to one another. So I can have a I can have a, a vanilla MQTT topic namespace and a Sparkplug B topic namespace as siblings in the unified namespace. But I could not have Sparkplug B and vanilla as, um, uh, you know, I can't have a Sparkplug B payload as a child of, an MQ, of a vanilla uh, 3.1.1 namespace and vice versa. I can't do that. But they can be siblings right next to one another. Sometimes companies obscure on purpose, but I wouldn't uh, assume that of IA. Correct. Uh, 
they um, there are scenarios, um, Matthew Paris, but of all the companies I work with, they and Tatsoft are by far the most um, user friendly, developer friendly. All right, uh, Zach asked, can you describe the different parts of the unified namespace and the role to the OSI model? So what protocols of the OSI model would be used for the various aspects of the UNS architecture? It might be a bit of a vague question. I have some idea about the answer, but I think it would be interesting to hear what Walker uh, you ha and you have to say about it. So somebody had sent Zach a message privately, and then he pasted the question. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to first go over what an OSI Pi architecture looks like. So if you, um, I had to create it, I had to sketch it because I can't share the, the um, copyrighted version. But if you were going to look at an OSI Pi um, solution-centered stack for uh, industry 4.0, it's going to look like this, right? You're going to have, now this is basically the automation stack turned on its side. Okay. So you have your edge systems on the far left that they, they're going to unlock with native connectors into the site-level OSI Pi historian. Can you make it fill the screen a little bit more? Uh, yeah. Why, you really can't see that? A little bit more. There we go. Wow, man. Just for the viewers at home. Uh, okay, cool. Um, so you have your, you have your data on, out on the edge, and, what they, and this is what the stack looks like. They still actually do linear point-to-point -point integration with OSI Pi, but that doesn't mean that OSI Pi doesn't have additional connectors, right? So you could use native connectors here to, to consume data from other applications. You can do that. Same thing at the enterprise. But um, I'm going to talk about architecture first, and then next week I'll answer this question uh, in more detail. But I want everyone to understand what an OSI Pi infrastructure would look like in general for Industry 4.0. So you're going to have all your edge systems. OSI Pi's OSI Soft's going to come in. Well, now Aviva is going to come in and try to sell you, you know, OSI Soft, the OSI Soft stack, right? That's what they're going to try and sell you. So you have, you're going to use OSI Pi to unlock the data from the plant floor using native connectors and point to point connection into the historian. Okay. You may do asset frames, which are basically just models or UDTs inside of OSI Pi. You may do event frames where you're creating abstracted events, abstracted triggers for data, okay, inside of OSI Pi. Those, those are two pieces of context that are very, very important for your unified namespace. Um, you need the asset frame for the structure, and you need the, um, the events for the triggers. Unfortunately, OSI Pi does not support publishing that context outside of OSI Pi, what they, over MQTT, right? So, they consume over MQTT, but they don't allow you to publish that context out over MQTT, which is most of their customers don't know this. They'll, you know, OSI Pi will go, oh yeah, we support MQTT, but then they never tell you any of the, the limitations, right? So I'm end up having to explain it. So this is what your stack generally looks like though. Edge systems, native connectors into the historian. Then you'll use a native OSI Pi to OSI Pi connector to go from your site level historian to your enterprise historian, okay? You may use asset frames and event frames at both the site and the enterprise layer. Then you're going to use a native connector between, this is the stack they generally sell you, from OSI Pi into uh, Thing Creator, PTC ThingWorks. On top of that part of the stack, you'll have intelligent asset optimization, which is through ThingWorks. You'll have your data lake, 
Okay. So you'll have a connector into the data lake, then you'll have connectors into the analysis engine, and then you'll have connectors into your visualization layer that would be non-PTC. So this is how you would unlock, you know, visualizations, data flow in one direction. Um, and then on top of this, you're going to have uh, all your dashboards for PTC. Okay. There's a ton of context in here. As you go through the stack, let's say you, you go to a client and they've already got this infrastructure in place. You're going to have to figure out a way to unlock that. Okay. So how, how do I get the event frame at context? What is the structure of the events, the event frames in the site level historian? What is the structure of the asset frames? I can't publish that out natively over MQTT because they don't let you. And that's by design because they want to make sure you stay within that ecosystem. Okay. So, uh, um, so what we do is we have to figure out a way to unlock that. Okay. And the way that we unlock it generally is through PTC consume up through these connectors into PTC and then publish out into our unified namespace. Um, over the OSI Pi infrastructure. So, um, and I, and next week I will complete this answer. Okay. I want, but I want people to understand I want people to understand, have a chance to go back and watch this video, view this stack, um, view this stack so that I can, um, answer your question, uh, more completely next week. Okay. All right, Durga Kali asks, Walker, could you point out the key differences between Orange and Tossybox? Are they similar? If so, why do you prefer Tossybox over all other tech? I'm actually going to answer this with another question at the same time. So, uh, no, wait, where is it? Zach, you missed a question. Which one was it? Uh, the Verizon question. Oh, shoot. Yes. I need you to drop uh, that in there and refresh on. it. The one from Jody Rice. All right. Yes. All right. So two questions I'm going to answer at the same time. Sorry for the delay, guys. So could you point out key differences between Orange and Tossybox? Are they similar? If so, why do you prefer Tossybox over all other tech? And Jody Rice, does anyone have any experience in connecting an edge router to the Verizon network? Ideally, a step-by-step -step procedure. Here's what I've come up with so far. Find a router that meets your requirements and is approved by Verizon. Get a data-only SIM and uh, card and data plan for the device, have Verizon provision the device linking the IMEI number to the SIM card number. Do I need a static IP? I'm planning on using OpenVPN for access. Once on the network, will the device get a NAT firewalled IP? Uh, any other help you can offer would be appreciated. So I'm going to answer Jody's question here natively. Number one, don't do it like this. Okay. So, um, and here's why. There's better technology. And if you haven't already purchased everything, do it the way I'm about to show you. Okay. So, um, you can go this route. The router that you'll use will cost you less, but the service will cost you a lot more. So to get like a static IP address through a through Verizon, for example, is expensive. Okay. So, um, it's, it's not, it's not cheap. You're much better off using just a Verizon SIM with an off the shelf solution that already has VPN on board. But let me say this, if you're going to use the open VPN, um, service that is running. If you're using the open VPN service that's running on the device itself, then you have to expose that service, um, externally. Okay. So I'm going to show you the actual architecture you should use. 
um, and the one that we do use. And then I'm also going to be answering um, Durga's question at the exact same time. All right. So if you look at remote access over cellular, this is what the architecture looks like. So I, I want to start with why is it we use Toshibox? Let me say something again. We do not get paid from Toshibox. There's no commercial relationship that we have with them. Um, Bill Bain, who is the US-based um, executive for Toshibox. So I, I think he actually has an ownership stake in the States and Toshibox is, um, I think they're based out of Denmark or something. But anyway, we tested uh, like three dozen different industrial VPN solutions. And, and when we say industrial deep VPN, what we wanted to do was we wanted to say, what is the best way for us to connect to where we're in our office and we want to connect to devices remotely? But also we want to have the ability to create, um, we want to be able to create segmented networks of different client um, networks. So I want to be able to take the network from client A and I want to be able to take the network from client B and from a local connection I want to be able to talk to both of them if I wanted to aggregate data, for example. But I also wanted to, we also wanted to be able to overcome the problems with the existing VPN solutions that most of your clients will provide for you, right? They're going to give you, you know, you're, they're going to give you a Cisco VPN that you're going to, yeah, there you go, Tassibox headquarters in Finland. They're going to give you like a Cisco connection and and you, what, what's going to happen is they're going to give you a key, you're going to install that on a VM, and then you're going to try to connect to the VPN. The problem with doing that is that you're going to connect to that, to a, a single, there's going to be a single device you're connecting to, like at the, in, the, in the data center, right? They'll have a, VP, a piece of VPN hardware, or, or they're going to have a server with a piece of VPN software running on it that gets you on to that network. So you have problems with scalability there. As you have tons and tons of contractors trying to remote in, the amount of bandwidth that each contractor gets to navigate through the network diminishes, right? So we decided, okay, let's we wanted our feature to we wanted our solution to be edge driven, that is we didn't want to have any like inbound ports to the local area network. Um, we wanted the device whatever appliance we're using is going to is all it needed was internet access going out right, to be able to establish a connection going out. And so we didn't have to expose um, the, the plant network, number one. Number two, it needed to be scalable. As long If we want to add more and more networks, we did not want the quality of service to drop, okay? Number three, we wanted it to be highly performant. I wanted it to be, um, I wanted it to be as if I'm in the plant, okay? and on the plant floor, and I wanted that type of performance. Number four, I wanted a super competitive price point. And number five, I wanted to use a company that was going to treat, treat the appliances that you're using as a node in the ecosystem. So if I'm using a, a, a Tossy Box appliance, I want them to, I want to be able to take the information about that appliance and publish it into my infrastructure so that I can monitor the health of the network. So that's why we use Tossybox. So I'm answering his, his question about uh, both of their questions as to, you know, what's the difference between Orange and Tossybox? And should I use this Verizon, you know, Verizon appliance with OpenVPN? So the Jody, what Jody would be doing is this, he would be buying this appliance right here, which is the RUT955. It's a LTE 4G router. It's got dual SIM in it. You put, put the SIM in and then, um, 
And then the, the wide area network access is through the cellular gateway and the local area network access is through the ports on the front. Okay. Right. This device costs you about 250 bucks and then you've got to pay for your cellular service and you're going to want to get a static IP for this um, to make it as functional as humanly possible. We don't recommend this architecture. It doesn't mean that this isn't going to work, but it's not going to scale. You're going to spend a ton on the service side as opposed to the hardware side. Um, and you're not going to get the performance that, that we're looking for. So this is the architecture you should use. Okay. So for my cellular connection, this is what I'm showing you here is the lock 500. There's a, a whole bunch of different Tossy box units, but the way the architecture works is I've got a device, a, a, an edge gateway that's on the plant floor. It has a WAN access and a LAN access. LAN is your private edge network where all your machines are. And then you need to give it wide area uh, network access. In this case, I'm this lock 500 allows you to put in its dual SIM. So you can put your Verizon SIM in here and then you can access the Tossy box ecosystem over the wide area network over the cellular connection for the person who wants to get onto the VPN. You're going to use either one of two things. You're either going to use a hard key, which is this USB stick. You can take it with you. You can plug it into any machine. When you plug it in, you'll install the little client. You'll put your unique password in. And then you can access any of the VPNs that that key is, is, um, has been, the administrator has given you access to. So you can add more and more networks over. All I got to do is add a unit. And now I, I've added more and more networks over time um, to the exact same key. Okay. There's also a soft key, which I run on my MacBook. So I, don't, I have a USB stick, but I don't use it. I, I use the soft key that has been assigned directly to my MacBook. So Every time, you know, Matt, who installs our Tossy boxes at all of our various clients, what he does is he takes that unit that we installed and he adds it to my, to my key. And he says, okay, walk from Walker's key, you can access this unit. And he'll, he has a list of all our users. And he says, these users or this group can access the, this list of units. So then all I do is launch the Tossy box software. I can see all the locks that I can connect to. I can connect to all of them at the same time if I want to. I can do that layer three or layer two. So that is, I can, if I, if, if the subnet that my local machine is on is the same subnet that the local, the, the local area network is out there, I can do layer three, which will do, um, it'll, it'll basically make my laptop, um, look like a device on the, the, the local area network on the plant floor, or I can set it up so that I have NAT between my device and, and the lock my laptop and the lock unit. The typical infrastructure is though, is that we've got a lock 500 or the, uh, the reason I'm using the lock 500 is because that has the SIM access, the, the wireless, the cellular access. The one that I have on the board back here is the lock 200, which is a lot cheaper, but it doesn't have cellular access. It, it, I have to plug it into internet so that I can remote into it. So as I, as I go through and add new locks, in my infrastructure, they just show up in my connection. And I have the ability if I want to. Now, there are many, many different architectures with Tossybox. This is one of the things we love. This architecture is the, is the basic architecture where I've got a physical key and I'm using physical devices out in the field. But Tossybox also has a software solution. They also have a, a cloud enterprise solution. They've got many different layers. This is what we use, okay? 
So if you're so for Jody, who's saying, hey, how should I do this Verizon thing? The answer would be don't do it that way because you're going to spend far too much. And what you've done is you've created a very unique, um, discrete uh, virtual private network with that that Verizon router. Right. It, I mean, you're not creating an ecosystem. Right. One of the things that we do is when we work with really huge companies who have terrible remote access because you're accessing it through the DMZ, what we generally do is we ship them a lock unit. We get permission from their IT group. They go ahead and take a look at Tasi Box. They check it off. We ship them a unit and we tell them, go, we want you to put that unit out on the plant floor and you just got to make sure that the WAM port has um, internet access. Let us know when it's plugged in. Once they plug it in, we connect and now we have access to the network. Um, any chance of you sharing your OneNote presentation? Stephen Egan asked me. Uh, the answer is yes. Some of the presentations I can share. Um, it would have to be on a, a case by case basis. So let let me get back to why is it we use Tossybox? I get this question all the time. Oh, what's the difference between Orange and Tossybox? Orange is software based. Okay, so Orange. Think of Orange as um, Orange is a software based. Uh, VPN solution that doesn't have all of the features that you get from the Tossy Box solution. Okay, um, I mean, we listen. We looked at every available industrial VPN, and you know, everyone will normally bring up Ewan. And the reason they bring up Ewan is because Ewan, um, they were there first. You know, they were in the early two thousands, and a lot of OEMs ship their units with Ewan, so that's what people are familiar with. Ewan cozies, they're crap. I mean, they they weren't crap in the 2000s, but there's way better technology now. You, I would never use an Ewan in my infrastructure ever. Uh, I just I wouldn't. Um, you know, not to mention, you know, they you have to pay for your service to even access your own devices. You don't do that with Tossybox. There's no software fee unless you're purchasing the enterprise layer. So all I'm doing is buying the lock. I'm buying the USB, and then I I have my VPN. Uh, also, I would not use OpenVPN in a production environment. So we use OpenVPN in like development, but we w- we don't use it in. Yeah, someone production asked that about the Opto Twenty Two. Like, how is this different than? Because I think Open. Oh, they're like, how is this yep. different than uh, Opto Twenty Two with their OpenVPN solution or whatever? You would need so Opto Twenty Two with OpenVPN. You have to. You have to have for the PLC. You need to allow inbound access to be able to connect to the 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 v, the VPN service. Does Tossybox have a maybe? Why don't we just have Tossybox appliance run on the Opto Twenty Two Groove Epic like how it does on the PLC Next, like the software appliance on the PLC Next? Correct. Maybe I mean, they have the same thing in Opto. I'm not sure yet. Though. Well, you know, and and if you guys want to know more about Opto. Uh, Tossy box. And again, let me make something clear. This is not sponsored by Tossy box. We, we, we push Tossy box because we believe it's best in class. I mean, of everything we've tested, there's nothing even close. I mean, and if you, if you use Tossy box, you're going to be like, I can't believe I, I didn't, I didn't do this earlier. So the reason we, we push this is because we believe in it. Just like Canary labs, there's no commercial relationship. Canary labs does not pay us to sing their praises. Factory studio, Tatsoff does not pay us to sing their praises. None of that. There's none of those. I'm giving you my impartial opinion. The the only type of time we only type of value we get is occasionally they will send us um, 
it's they will send us like a device to evaluate for free and we get to keep it. Like that's basically the only value that we, we ever get out of um, reviewing um, solutions. And by the way, that doesn't happen very often. Most of the times we're buying the stuff to evaluate, including the Tossy Box devices. We bought all of our, our units. I think they ended up giving us one for free, but Matt can explain, you know, I, you know, I, I think they gave us one to evaluate or something, but we buy all of our units. I'm, I'm not, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm just giving you my impartial opinion on this. Jerry Reeves is the guy that I deal with. He's based in Florida. He's their business development manager, understands the technology really well. Bill Bain is the, he's the stateside president. Um, I think he has an ownership stake. I, I don't know for sure that how that relationship is, but Bill's the guy who's in charge in North America. Uh, Ray Ballister, I've never worked with, but Jerry is the guy that I work with all the time. Great guy. Um, and, um, and, and Jerry can help you architect a solution, but highly, I'm telling you, we, we use Tossy. We've been using Tossy box devices now for going on like three years. It's our exclusive VPN solution. Each year I evaluate new solutions, including solutions like orange, which is to answer the question, what's the difference between orange? Orange is a software based VPN. So think of it as instead of them selling you the device, there you're getting the software from them and installing it on your edge device. Right. And then same thing they have their, you know, and then you, you have a client that does point to point virtual private networking connection, but, uh, orange also has a, an upper layer to allow you to connect many different of those cl many clients into a single, uh, infrastructure. Orange isn't bad. It's just not the best. And we deal with best in class. Is it a coincidence um, that their name is orange and Tossy Bach is, is also orange? Uh, I don't, I, I, yeah, I would say it's probably, yeah, um, purely coincidental. Yeah. I, um, I can tell you that I, in, in my career, remote access has always been a huge deal. And for anybody who's watching this, if you want to access equipment remotely, that is highly, highly problematic. Okay. Like it is going to give you a ton of problems over trying to access equipment remotely. The original idea was to access equipment through onboard VPNs that you would only plug into the internet when there was a problem. So, right, they would ship like an Ewan. It would be in the panel. You would always have it unplugged until there was a problem. You'd plug it in and then the OEM would remote into it and try to diagnose some problems. That was how it started, right? But then as we started taking data and and trying to turn that into information, we, there, started, there started becoming many applications we also needed access to. I need to be able to remote into the SCADA system. I need to be able to remote into the historian or to the report server, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, instead of, instead of just accessing one piece of equipment, which I can put an appliance on, what I want to be able to do is access a local area network and then be able to connect to anything that's on that LAN. And that's where solutions like Tossy box come in. Again, the reason we use it, that this is the architecture we use for all remote access, edge-driven. That is that it, this device is what instantiates the connection into the ecosystem. Um, it's scalable. We can add unlimited numbers of devices and I can network them all together, even though they're on completely different subnets. It's very, very powerful for our uses, right? It's performant. We've never had a performance issue. In fact, We've used this cellular connection you got here. One of the things that we've done many times, actually, for oil and gas customers is we'll have a failover connection. So 
The Lock 500 allows you to plug into a wide area network, say it's a VSAT connection that the customer has, and then that VSAT connection goes down, it can fail over to your cell, your SIM, your cellular SIM, and then you still have access. And we do that in many, many architectures. The other beauty of these devices is we have devices that are only temporary at a client. They ship it back to us and then we ship it to a different client. And then they install it and now we're able to access their equipment while we're doing the doing the remote access. The, the reason we use Tossybox is we used to have to put language in all of our, and for Intellic, we used to have to put language under um, risks and assumptions and exceptions with, in the statement of work, which was your remote access has to be sufficient for us to do our work. And we wanted to engineer that out. Um, what we wanted to do was guarantee the remote access was going to be sufficient. So that's why we do it this way. Hopefully that answered the question. Uh, uh, oh, peak board. Right. I think that one's next, right? Yeah, we got a couple has anyone, more questions. Anyone run across a so this? I'm going to stop right here. This will be the last one we do. So has anyone run across a software called Peakboard? The answer is yes. There's a free Peakboard designer. Uh, then two purchase packages called Hub and Edge. My assessment is that it seems to be similar to Ignition, Vision, Perspective, or Factory Studio. That's not entirely um, true. Yes, Michael Dowdell, Bill Bain is definitely an interesting character. The first time I was on a call with Bill, he had like a, like a bear skin or something hanging on the wall behind him. And, you know, he's like 100% type A gregarious guy, you know, he's a great guy to talk to. You, interesting is a, is a very, uh, that's a polite way of putting it. He's, he's, he's a super, super smart dude and a very savvy business guy. Uh, so let's take a look at peak board. Um, so no peak board is not like ignition, but it's, it's, um, it isn't like all of the other solution centric IOT platforms that we've, we've reviewed. Okay. Um, Oh, is this the digital, the digital thread of the month? The, this is the digital thread of the month, right? So, but, but, it, but a little different, right? So let's, let's give Peakboard credit where credit is due. Peakboard uses, it, depending upon whether you're going to use um, Hub or Edge, right? Um, in a nutshell, what Peakboard is, is um, it is a really a dashboarding solution. So let's, you know, um, it's, a, it's a dashboarding solution that supports many different connectors. You basically build a, you build, you design a project in Peakboard and then you compile it and deploy it to like a, an edge device, an edge device like at the screen, okay? So think of it that way. It's not a like server client related. It's, it's basically you deploy it to the edge and all the visualizations are gonna run on that appliance, okay? They also have edge appliances that create the digital threads so that you can, um, plug the digital thread into the Peakboard designer, which is where you create your visualizations. Where it, and, and that makes it very similar to like, you know, a mom and pop AWS, Azure, IoT Edge, IoT Hub architecture, right? The, and, and same thing, you create the designer and deploy it to the edge, that whole deal. Uh, although you don't do that with Azure and AWS, you don't actually deploy the visualization to the edge. You run the visualization in the cloud, but you create a digital thread on the edge that you stream up into the uh, cloud infrastructure. Where Peakport is different is, and where it is similar to Ignition is that you can take, you can take the raw data from, um, like say I, 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 I use the OPC UA connector or an MQTT broker connector. 
I can take the raw data from those namespaces and I can do drag and drop visualizations very similar to what I can do in Ignition and deploy them, okay? That's where the, that's where the similarities end. So a couple of problems that I have, okay? Um, number one, you cannot try out this software without first giving up your information and talking to somebody, okay? And that's not the case with um, inductive automation or TATSOF. There, there are ways to download without ever having to speak to anybody. Number two, their pricing is not published, and that's by design, okay? We, let me make something clear. We don't work with any company that does not publish their pricing because if their pricing is not published, it is simply designed to screw you over. I mean, that's the only reason they don't publish the pricing because they, they want to have the option to extract as much out of you as humanly possible. And if you are not a savvy negotiator, you may end up paying far more for your solution than the guy next door. Okay. And, and engineers should not have to be uh, savvy negotiators. So the answer with Peakboard is, have you reviewed it? Yes, I have. Um, does it, can it provide value in the market? The answer is yes, it can. Can it plug into an IOT infrastructure based on MQTT? Yes, it can. Not Sparkplug B, but MQTT. So I could have a, I could use Peakboard for specific solutions um, within my infrastructure. And then I could get the data from Peakboard into my IAOT infrastructure based on MQTT. I could do that. So it can plug in. Is it, you know, on my top 10 list of IAOT platforms and solutions? It is not. Um, but it, there's, there's nothing, it's not that there, it's bad at anything. It's just that there are many other platforms out there that are far better at the things it's good at. And, and when we try to operate in the best in class space, okay. Hopefully that, that was, uh, that answer your question. All right. That's the, that's the last one I'm going to do. Zach, okay. any, any other questions that I didn't get to yep. that are, that are in the chat? No, but uh, you reminded me to say, you know, this is the unified namespace. There are many like it, but this one is mine. <laughs> uh, by the way, I, Pete, there were when I originally reviewed Peakboard at the end of last year, there were many things about it that I thought was cool, right? Like uh, creating the visualization is pretty easy, right? Because they use they have a toolkit and the designer, and it's you know it's pretty easy to create the visualizations, but you're really going to create your solutions on a, if, if your, if your infrastructure is already object oriented, you could create like one application you could deploy to many devices easily and visualize them in many places. You could do that. Um, but in most cases, you're going to be developing the solution on a case by case, use case by use case, and you're not going to scale it. You won't, you're not going to, um, you know, the, the rule, one of the rules of digital transformation is what I build today is going to be built upon what I did yesterday and what I build tomorrow will stand on the shoulders of what I build today. Um, that's, that's not the way peak board is architected. So any other questions that you guys want me to answer? Did we answer Nabin's question about the extracting data from backnet and networking at AWS? I'm going to, you're going to add that to the list for next week. Nabin, I'm going to answer right. that next week because I want to give you three or four options and I want to sketch it. All right, guys. Thank you for joining. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Appreciate you all. Take it easy.